Well, good morning. It is a joy and a privilege and very humbling to come and preach to you God's word this morning. Preaching is like preparing a great feast, and here it's like preparing a great feast for 200-some people. And a guest preacher is like ordering out from that new restaurant in town. You just don't really know what you're going to get. So rest assured, next week or perhaps the next, uh, you will be back to regular home cooking. So let me pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to hear your word. Would it come with power? Would it come with conviction? Would it come with healing? Do your work in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're joining us today for the first time in the book of Esther, we're about halfway through our summer series. And one of the characteristics of this intriguing book of the Bible is that at a time when powerful kings ruled, in a time when influential men live, like Socrates and the Buddha and Confucius and the Greek, uh, uh, Greek physician Hippocrates, there came this displaced, orphaned Jewish girl named Hadassah, likely in her teens, who had just happened to become queen of the largest empire in the world. And this young woman would then go on and dare to save tens of thousands of her people from being annihilated at the hands of an enemy. We know this young woman by her Persian name, Esther. These are dramatic, they are real life, they are historic events happening in a kingdom that stretched from modern-day Sudan all the way to Pakistan. And while Esther plays this important rule, uh, leading role in this history, we've been saying all along that there is a not-so-obvious hero here, a behind-the-scenes personality who is left unnamed in the book. And this off-camera hero, he functions kind of like a, like a film director. He's there, he's calling the shots, he's setting the scenes, he's choreographing the action in all of the king's kingdom so that you come away from this story saying that none of this, none of this could have happened simply by chance. Somebody is behind this. And that someone is the real hero because ultimately it's he who works all things together to bring relief and deliverance from the hand of the enemy. The story is set in Persia in 5th century BC, but that same hero is just as active in the world in 21st century Philadelphia, and we're going to return to him in a minute. But to set the scene today, I'd like to take you uh, to another kingdom, a modern-day kingdom, the modern-day North African kingdom of Morocco. Morocco is one of the few countries in the world today where there's still a king who's powerfully ruling over all of his people. And when the king comes, um, and he leaves, when he leaves his royal palace and he comes to cities in his kingdom, the people, they go out, they flood the streets, they bring their king posters, they bring their flags, they bring their banners, and they line the curb, and they chant their king cheers. And if you're there, you'll chant with them from the sidelines, from behind these metal barriers kept at safe distances. But woe to the man or the woman who stands in the way when the king and his men come to town. A number of years ago, I was living 
in Morocco, and King Muhammad VI was in town for a circumcision festival for his firstborn son. Now, it was a huge party. It was amazingly festive, right? Festive for everybody but the son, of course. And the king's caravan left the main street and then descended by foot this narrow old city alley where we were living. Now, that alley is normally packed, packed with stores and flooded with tourists and shoppers. But on that fateful morning, no one was there. And it didn't dawn on me as I strolled out into this middle of the street. Well, when the king's AK-47 wielding guard uh, finally got to me, I was promptly escorted to the walls with a stern rebuke to make way for the king. Now, further up the hill that same, that same uh, morning, an American woman had also stood by as the king guard approached. And as the bodyguard passed, she took a chance and she stepped out right in front of the king. The guard, of course, they spun around, their, figure, their fingers on the trigger, and just as she planned, the king stopped. And as he looked at her with this kind of growing concern in his eyes, and as the guard was moving out, moving in, she shot out her hand, and she declared she was an American living in Morocco, and she welcomed the king to her city. <laughs> well, the king whose nickname is the King of Cool. Uh, I'm sure he rolled his eyes at this point. And as he realized that she was just one of these audacious Americans who posed no imminent threat, in an act of what might be called diplomatic sensitivity, he put out her hand, kind of squeezed out a hello, and quickly continued to the festival he was heading to. President John F. Kennedy once remarked that there are risks and costs to action but they are far less than the long-range risks of comfortable inaction. There are risks and costs to action, but they are far less than the long risks, uh, long-time risks of comfortable inaction. In our passage today, Esther risks approaching King Ahasuerus in order to save her people. The Jews are there under a death sentence devised by Haman, the king's second-in-command. Now, Esther might have chosen comfortable inaction. She she might have kept to the comfortable status quo in the royal household. Or as my son would have it, she might have assembled all the king's eunuchs together for a heist on Haman's money so that he couldn't carry out his evil plot like some kind of uh, modern uh, 5th century Ocean's Eleven. If you were here last week, you remember that these timely, these timely admonishing words that come to her from her cousin Mordecai. Esther 4.14 says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's household will perish. Esther has determined to risk her position as queen, and her very life to intercede for her people. You see, to come before the king uninvited, we read in chapter 4 last week, there is, quote, one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out his royal, his golden scepter, so that he or she may live. Not even the queen was exempt. 
And King Ahasuerus wasn't exactly known as the sultan of sensitivity, and he certainly wasn't a model, model husband. So our story today begins with Esther having fasted for three days. She's adorning herself in her royal robes, and she's daring to stand before the throne to save her people. Her fate really rests on this one crucial moment of decision. Will the king extend his golden scepter of mercy, or will he put her to death for her risky law-breaking? Well, this book is full of suspense. The book is full of great reversals of fate and fortune. But amidst all of this dramatic tension and all these intriguing characters, don't miss, don't miss the heroic figure that's behind the scenes directing these real-life events. That unseen hero is God the King, the king who has infinitely greater power than Ahasuerus and whose scepter sways all that will happen and all, uh, all that the enemy plans to do. So here, I want us to consider today how by faith, in the presence of her enemy, Esther looks to that invisible king, that invisible God, as we saw last, in the last part of chapter 4 last week, she called her people first to a fast. And what began with fasting, we'll see in this passage, will soon become a feast. We've already heard that the book of Esther is a book of feasts, and you'll remember that the king and queen in chapter 1 held extravagant feasts, 180 days, in fact. And there was a feast when Esther became queen then in chapter 2, and here these two important feasts come in chapters 5 and chapter 7, located at the very heart of the book. The book of Esther will even end in a feast. So I ask, what's so important? What's so important about feasts and festivals? Well, in the world today, there seems to be a festival for just about everything, right? There's folk fests and film fests, there's farm fests and flower fests, food fests, I read about a taco festival this week with unlimited tacos. Doesn't that sound great? They ran out in the first 90 minutes. There were a lot of angry people. As you'd imagine, feasts in the ancient Near East, they involved an extraordinary amount of food. And sometimes in Persia, as we read, limitless drink. And though the food was good, the greatness of these feasts... The greatness of these feasts was found in the importance of what or who was being celebrated. You see, long ago, God had given his people festivals, yearly feasts. They celebrate God's goodness, and they commemorate God's victory over his enemies. Esther and God's people, they had a real enemy in 480 B.C. Did they imagine that their God, God their God, would show up and save them. You know, perhaps Esther needed a little providential reminder of God's past deliverance of his people from their enemies because God arranged, God arranged that at that very time of Haman's evil plan, he gave Esther and, her, and his people, her people too, one of those yearly festivals. At the time of Haman's evil plot, God gave one of those yearly festivals. In fact, one of our big ideas today is, God, is that God prepares a feast 
in the presence of his enemies. God prepares a feast in the presence of his enemies. That might sound familiar to you. I've stolen it directly from David in Psalm 23. And we're going to consider this big idea in two main points. The first is this. God's feasts point us to his presence and his power. God's feasts point us to his presence and his power and fill us with hope of his victory over his and our enemies. And the second point is this. God's enemies, though successful for a season, will go ultimately from feasting to famine. So let's dive a little bit deeper in here. Before there was a feast in Esther 5, there was a fast in Esther 4. Recall that back in Esther 3 even, on the 13th day of the first month of the year, on the 13th day of the first month of the year, the king's edict crafted by Haman, the enemy of the Jews, had gone out into all of the Persian world. That edict was this, quote, destroy, kill, annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, which was to be at the end of the year. It was a genocide. It was evil. Truly the work of an enemy. In chapter 4, we learn that it's on the same day that the edict goes out, the 13th day of that first month, that Queen Esther instructs the Jews of the city to fast with her for three days. Now catch this. Catch this. Ironically, Esther's fast came at a time when the Jews ought to have been feasting. Why? Well, you see, for the Jew, the 13th day of the first month would be like someone saying to you, well, on, our, on December 24th, and instinctively you would think, well, that's Christmas Eve. Well, for the Jew, the 13th of the first month was Passover Eve. And Passover, you may remember, is opening day to the Israel, Israel's festival where every year Jews spread a table and a feast. They have a feast and they retell the story of God's great deliverance from the hand of an enemy. The fare on that table included the lamb, the bitter herbs, the cups of wine, the unleavened bread, each one of these things full of symbolism, all pointing to the power of God to save. Now, was it simply coincidence? Was it coincidence that Haman's decree to destroy the Jews went out just as that yearly reminder that God saves his people from their enemies was starting was it coincidence, or is it true to the theme of this book that God is there? He's present. He's undercover. He's doing his covert, powerful work of deliverance. Don't miss the God behind the details. He's hidden, yet he's present. And there's no blockbuster miracles here, but his timely providence reminds us, reminds Esther that he's on the throne and that he rules over all the affairs of the world. That was true in Esther's time, and I want to say that's true for you and I now. Does God still act at just the right place, at just the right time, in just the right way? You know, God may seem conspicuously absent to you at times. You may even be asking yourself, where where is this God? 
Well, stories like Esther in the Bible are given us, given to us to help us see this unseen God, that his reality and his rule are as true, as power, powerful, as timely, as good as ever. So take a quick look back here at chapter 5. Verse 1, where on the third day of Esther's fast, Esther readies herself to meet the king. And what has she done? She's prepared a feast. Now, why prepare a feast? In order to plea for the salvation of her people. Is Esther just kind of buttering up this king? Is this some strategy that she's cooked up uh, to win his favor? Or could it be? Could it be? That Jewish Esther, in the confines of the pagan palace, in the presence of her real enemy, Haman, is remembering this yearly feast that declares that God saves. God saves from the enemy. It's not explicit in the text, but a faithful Jew would instinctively know the importance of remembering God with a feast at that very month, week, and day of the year. What we're saying, what I'm saying is that this is much more than a feast. This is a bit of a flashback. In the presence of Haman the enemy, the timing of this feast flashes Esther back to those festival weeks that God ordained about 1500 B.C. when Israel was delivered out of Pharaoh's hand in Egypt. So significant, so significant was that deliverance that for centuries the festival that festival was the reminder to Israel that God is victorious over her enemies. It's really not unlike the fourth, our 4th fourth of July, right? We're behind all of those hot dogs and flags and fireworks. There's a yearly reminder that America fought for independence and won. And we've been celebrating the 4th of July, I think, for like 240-some years. Israel's been celebrating Passover for something like 3,000 years. Nehemiah, in the biblical book that comes right after, uh, in, in chronological order, uh, Esther, he wrote this, You, God, saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, their enemy, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, and catch this, which remains to this day. Esther must have known the history of Israel's feasts and great enemies like Pharaoh. She must have known that God had saved his people then. And we're asking, did she believe that God would save his people from the hand of Haman now? Her prayers to God in this book are never mentioned. We only see what she does. She holds a fast, and then she throws a feast. And that feast just so happened to be at the time of the Jewish yearly festival that declares to Israel that God wins. Coincidence? God prepares a feast in the presence of the enemy. God's feasts are reminders of his presence and power and fill us. Fill us with hope over of his victory over the enemy. Well, let's flash forward to the future for a minute. Esther's feast, after taking us to the past, then takes us to the future, beyond Esther's day, to the greatest feast that this world has ever seen, that also declares God's victory over 
his enemies. Look, pick any day, any time, any place in human history, every person, every people, including you and I, have had mortal enemies. And the greatest of those enemies have always been unseen. And what do I mean? Our all-pervasive enemies of sin and Satan are far stronger, they're far more crafty, they're far more relentless than flesh and blood enemies like Pharaoh and Haman. As Ajay reminded us through Luther's hymn a couple weeks ago, the craft and power of Satan is great, he's armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. The sober reality is that sin and Satan want you and I dead. And after we physically die, we will experience what the Bible then calls the second death. Unless someone, someone works our deliverance. Look, imagine yourself a Jew in Esther's time living one of those 127 provinces in the Persian Empire, and you've just heard this royal edict. You will die at the end of the year. And as Sibby said last week, there's no appeals court. There's nowhere to go. I mean, feel the weight of that. Your condemnation's been decreed. The edict is given. The law will be kept. To whom? Whom will you go? To whom will you go? Who, like Esther, will dare risk comfort, perhaps status, life, to save you from your fate? Well, the good news, the good news is that there was one. One who said, I lay down my life for my sheep, and then did it. The scriptures record that 2,000 years ago, Exactly at that same Jewish festival, during that same week, Jesus, our Passover lamb, was sacrificed. The New Testament writer adds, therefore, let us keep the festival. What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means that Jesus' body, like the unleavened bread at the feast, was broken. And Jesus' blood, like that festival wine, was poured out. And why? He did it to destroy the works of the devil. And he did it to release his people from condemnation because of their sin. You know, Jesus is the host of that greatest festival. Jesus is there at the table. In fact, Jesus is the feast. Have you celebrated him? If you haven't, If you haven't, the invitation today is to come to the table that God has prepared for you in the presence of your deadliest enemies. Come and feast by faith that Jesus, the festival lamb, saves. He saves. Brothers and sisters, the good news, the good news for us is that the death sentence is lifted through faith in Jesus. However, The influence of your enemies must still be fought each and every day. Where do you get the strength to fight your enemies? You know, every week here at Seven Mile 
road. We have a feast that's spread before us. Prayer, song, preaching, communion, they're spread like serving bowls on a table before you. Pastoral leaders, like top chefs, if you will, fill these bowls with spiritual food that strengthens our faith, gives courage to us to fight the battle with our enemy. Do you come hungry? Do you come hungry for this weekly feast that God spreads before you right here? If you're like me, I too often come to a Sunday feast like a picky child comes to dinner. Not that I have any of those, but um, rather, rather than a soldier coming off the battlefield famished from a week of week-long engagement with the enemy. Feast at the table that God has prepared in the presence of your spiritual enemies. For Esther, you know, she had her moment at the table. And the survival of her people rested upon her action. But perhaps there's something, something just as momentous in your life today. As you consider your people, as you consider your family or your neighborhood or perhaps your co-workers, how is God, how is he calling you into action and out of comfortable inaction in the spiritual deliverance of others? Who might you invite to the feast of Christ this week? Looking back to the text, verse 8, Esther's table is spread, but she delays in giving her plea until a second feast, which she'll prepare the next day. And like a good cliffhanger, you'll just have to wait until next week to come back and find out just what happens. Of course, you could also read it this afternoon if you'd like. But the second half of our passage, which is verses 9 through 14, shows the ultimate undoing of God's enemies, whose feast is on the world and who never come to God's table by faith. So Haman, if you look back, for a moment, he's on top of the world. If there's a, if there's a Persian equivalent of like Times or Forbes magazine, he would have been on the front cover of it. Haman, he's got the job, he's got the status, he's got ten sons, he's filthy rich, he's been promoted to the second highest position in all of the Persian kingdom. He's got all the honor he could possibly hope for. Almost. Almost. Listen again to Haman's boast to his wife and friends. This is verse 11. Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. And then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. All of Haman's possessions, all of his accomplishments, they were simply not enough. Mordecai the Jew still refused to bow down to Haman, and Haman could not rest. He couldn't stand for it. And as Haman sees it, all he's got is worth nothing as long as he can't get what he doesn't have. Haman's wife, Zeresh, she temporarily here snaps him out of it, with, out of his self-pity, with this plan to go ahead and 
build a 75-foot gallow and hang Haman on it. You know, wonderful woman, sweet lady. In the 1830s, there was a French social scientist. His name was Alexis de Tocqueville. He made this interesting observation about the American people. He said this, he said, quote, a strange melancholy, a strange melancholy haunts Americans in the midst of their abundance. That is, Americans back in the 1830s were depressed, though they had so much. Can you imagine that? How much more so today? It's reported that the average American household, household has about 300,000 items ranging from things like uh, paper clips to ironing boards. De Tocqueville later added that the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the heart. Isn't that the case? We've got riches and families and accolades and accomplishments, and yes, they are joys. They are joys, but they're incomplete joys in that in and of themselves, they will never and can never satisfy our hearts. And yet, as discontent Christians, we often obsess over them as if they could. And sadly, when we realize that we can't get the lasting satisfaction that we crave out of the world, we are thrown into this strange kind of melancholy. Look, what's the thing, what's the thing that you had to have to satisfy you, but strangely, when you did manage to get it, you just didn't get enough satisfaction out of it. You just couldn't. Haman is like the relentless inspector chasing Jean Valjean in the book Les Mis, or the U.S. Marshal chasing Harrison Ford in the, in the film The Fugitive. Haman pursues with reckless abandon what he ultimately can never catch. And if we look at Haman's appetite for the world through the lens of worship, we'd say that Haman's God, his God is his pride. And he indulges himself with gluttonous consumption of worldly power and possessions and prestige. His feast on the world stands in stark contrast to Haman's feast of faith. And while Esther will go from fasting to feasting in our story, Haman will go from feasting, and spoiler alert here, to famine. And this is our second point under the big idea that God prepares a feast in the presence of his enemy. God's enemy, those successful for a time, will ultimately go from feasting to famine. Haman serves himself. He comes up empty. Esther serves her God and will ultimately be satisfied. And spiritual appetites like Haman simply cannot be satisfied by consuming the things of the world. There's just not enough spiritual value in the things of the world to satisfy our soul. Jesus says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Our souls, one has said, has, they have like a God-shaped void, and only the fullness of the invisible God can fill them. Or to put it another way, a godless heart never rests. The northern African early father of the church, Augustine, said this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, God. 
Come to the table. Come to the table. Let your heart find rest. Let your soul's appetites be satisfied as you feast on Jesus, God the Son. The psalmist says this, that God alone satisfies the longing soul. And the hungry soul he fills with good things. And I want to leave you today with lyrics from, a, from an older song. But it's a good song from Christian brother Michael Card. It's a song he wrote called Come to the Table. This is just a snippet from that song. It's an invitation to hungry souls. He says this, Come to the table and see in his eyes the love that the Father has spoken. And know you are welcome whatever your crime for every commandment you've broken. For he's come to love you and not to condemn, and he offers a pardon of peace. If you'll come to the table, you'll feel in your heart the greatest forgiveness, the greatest release. Come to the table that he's prepared for you, the bread of forgiveness, the wine of release. Come to the table and sit down beside him. The Savior, he wants you to join in the feast. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Lord, you are our shepherd. You make us lay down in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. You are the one who restores our soul. Even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we face enemies like sin and Satan, you are with us. Your rod and staff, they comfort us. Lord, you prepare the table before us in the presence of our enemies. You anoint our heads. Our cup overflows. Oh, Lord, we thank you for these truths, that goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives as we put our faith and trust in you, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.